Okay, so in my third grade class, we got to put these fertilized eggs in an incubator. And every morning, I would check them. And one day, I saw one of the shells start to crack. Crack just a little bit. And this wet baby chick wiggled its way right out of the egg. And its brother and sister on either side did the same thing. And it seemed like just seconds, seconds before these slimy creatures morphed, pow, into cheaping yellow puffballs. And they were so cute, cute, cute. And I was like, yeah. I went home and said, daddy, 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 I want a chicken. He said, good luck. We're going to raise chicken. And that day we started building chicken coops and we worked and we worked. And one week later, they arrived. 1,000 baby chicks. Right on, dad. They were yellow and cheeping and clean, 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 soft, soft, soft. We played with them, and they ran around. It was so much fun. We fed them the corn, and they made a crazy mess, but they were so cute. Then they started getting bigger, and they weren't yellow puffballs anymore, and they started poking at each other, poking. And every time you turned around, they were fighting. And then one time, I went out to the chicken coop. I opened the door, and a bunch of chickens were eating another chicken. Stop it! Stop! I I tried to save it, but it was too late. What is wrong with y'all? And the chickens got where they'd attack anything, anytime. If a bird had a spot or a limp or didn't make the right sound, they'd attack it. They'd attack to kill, and the smell was nasty. They made piles and piles of chicken crap, and Dad said it was my job to clean it up, and you could go blind shoveling that mess. And one time, I slipped and I fell all in it, and the chickens started attacking me, going for the eyes, and I screamed and knocked chickens everywhere and ran out into the fresh air, into the fresh air. And when the truck came to get the chickens to turn them into dinners, I laughed. I laughed all loud. Them little demons were about to get just what they deserved. You know, well, I'm a chicken fried And cold beer on a Friday night A pair of jeans that fit just right And a radio Today, on Snap Judgment From PRX and NPR Be careful what you wish for We've got stories, amazing stories About people who get exactly what they want And the horrible price they have to pay My name is Glenn Washington And this here snap judgment our first story of today's show does contain adult situations listener discretion is advised Matt, he came out to his parents as gay at the very, very tender age of 16. And it didn't go so well. So the moment he turned 18, like so many before him, Matt got himself a job and moved to that city by the bay, San Francisco. I felt alive. It was newfound freedom. And... Eric was my boyfriend. There was a spark and there was a click when we met. And he was in recovery. He was going to go to this weekend retreat for gay men in recovery. And their significant others or who they were dating were welcome to come as well. And I knew that what happened at Gay Sober Camp stayed at Gay Sober Camp. And so this drag show was happening at the camp. And Eric's sponsor said, do you want to do it? And I said, well, how, how am I going to do drag? I never once in my mind thought about doing drag or that I would make a pretty girl. And the fact that they asked me was like, well, if they're asking me, then maybe they'd see potential there. I go into this almost locker room type bathroom to get ready with these other drag queens that are, are, are much more established than I am at this point. They're larger than life. And these nine other men becoming women see me just standing there and they circled around me. And one of the girls comes running over with a foundation sponge and helps me apply my base. And another girl realizes I don't have eye makeup and offers me blue eyeshadow and lines my lips for me. It felt like this induction. I had put on a new skin. 
The hair was a short blonde bob. It transformed who I was. I owned it. I loved it. What's better than a blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy than a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl? In drag, it matters who you are as a drag queen. Because if you're going to be a drag queen, you've got to have a name. Otherwise, how are you introduced on stage? And that was the day that Rhoda Few made her debut. R-H-O-D-A-F-U-E. I mouthed the words and I put on jazz hands, slow quarter turns and a soft gaze with my chin cocked to the side, looking in the distance. And then I realized I had ran out of material as far as dance moves. And so when in doubt, promote sex. It always wins. It was only later after the show that I found out that I had literally a 70-something-year-old man that was legally blind and had no idea what was being done to him at the time. And so when they finished, they brought all of us back out, and we all stood there holding hands, and, and when they announced the winner, and it wasn't my name, I was a little devastated. I walked away with this new identity. I truly felt that she had something to offer, and I moved forward with that. Here I met this group of people that accepted me, and I found joy in that. I also learned a term during this time that was being called a booger. You're a booger when you first start out in drag because you're kind of sloppy, you're not really that sure of yourself in high heels, your makeup doesn't look right, and you usually forget your lines. I started learning that, you know, cover girl doesn't cover boy. And so I went to MAC and got color tested for Pro Foundation. So I'd stepped up my game a little bit. It was expensive to be a girl, that was for sure. I spent about $400 on makeup alone, wigs for another couple hundred dollars. And Rhoda kind of started taking over. When I went to a mall, it was no longer to shop for Matt, it was to shop for Rhoda. And if I saw something in the window, I would say out loud to whoever I was with, oh, Rhoda would really like that. I even designated the entire closet in my bedroom to Rhoda, and she was very organized. All of her hair was on foam heads up on the top shelf, and all of her outfits were hung neatly and usually pressed. There was a a complete separation between Matt Denning and Miss Rhoda Few, and I really started to want to have Rhoda more because Rhoda was more fun. Rhoda went out every night of the week, She could drink like there was no tomorrow and still be standing. She would do crazy things. The mental transition into Rhoda started the second that I opened up my makeup case. Because Matt didn't want to put on makeup, but Rhoda, that was her ritual. And the first brush stroke of foundation really brought her out. You would uh, get your bra on, put in your falsies. My breast actually consisted of pantyhose that had three cups of rock salt in each one and then knotted off and tied. And so I would place these rock salt bags basically in my bra to give me my cleavage. Your hips are industrial foam that you shave with a turkey knife, shape them to your own legs, and then put them on under a pair of dance tights, and then three more pairs of pantyhose over those dance tights so that it was a nice, smooth, consistent line. If you have that many pairs of tights on, you don't need to tuck. It kind of just tucks itself. And so once all that was done, it was time to drink because you tried to be ready 30 minutes before the show would start. But you didn't want to go out into the audience because you would ruin the illusion right away. So the bartenders would bring us drinks in the back and I would get three Jaeger bombers, two shots of vodka and a beer and proceed to take all of the shots in a row. That's how Rhoda did it and all of her friends. So whatever, the drunker I got, obviously the better I felt I was at it. And so I really use liquid courage on a nightly basis as Rhoda. A big part of performing is not just the singing. She'd go work the crowd because if you can sacrifice one person, making them feel really uncomfortable, everybody else loves that. And so you play up that. If I found out there was a straight guy out there or somebody that had never been to drag, that was fun. That was a lot of fun to stand up on somebody's table and stick their head under your dress or 
take one of your fake breasts out and throw it across the room and hit somebody in the head that's not paying attention. It didn't matter because the next day it was all washed away. There was no uh, repercussions as Rhoda. I still had to go to my day job. And even though I was dressed as Matt, I was thinking as Rhoda 24-7. What numbers am I going to do? Oh, you know, I need to fix that hole in in one of my dresses. I kind of started getting sloppy as far as separating Rhoda from Matt. And it was really important for Matt to still exist because Matt funded Rhoda. I went to work one time and somebody said, hey, there's something on your face. And I went to the bathroom only to discover that I had forgotten to remove the makeup on my face from my chin down. Rhoda, you know, was living life large, but it was really starting to take a toll on Matt to the point where I was hung over every morning for work and really kind of stopped caring. I mean, Rhoda definitely wanted to be full time. I mean, I would leave work early so I could go home and start getting ready for later. I mean, who starts getting ready at three o'clock in the afternoon for a nine o'clock event? But Rhoda did. She'd like to take a bath and relax and get ready and take her time. And sometimes it took her five hours to get ready. It just depended on how she felt that day. As this progressed, I started to hemorrhage money. And so I got this grand idea to go to a check cashing place. Like you walk in and you write this check and they give you money instantly with no questions asked. And you just have to pay it back the next time you get paid. I started floating check loans around. I'd borrow from one to pay the other. And I was doing it completely for Rhoda, whether it was outfits or hair or just alcohol. And then it started to catch up on me. One night I was out and that's the first time I ever had blacked out. Apparently, I drank two bottles of Chardonnay by myself, had fallen off my stool onto the floor, was combative with the waiter, and insulted a few people, and I was asked to leave. And I was told that I proceeded to skip up and down the street singing I Had the Time of My Life. So I was hearing all of this for the first time and felt horribly embarrassed, my friend Jessica, that was there that night. Jessica told me that she didn't think she could be my friend anymore. And that was a moment in my life where I had to do a reality check. That was it. The final step was to recognize that Rhoda got me to that spot, and so Rhoda had to go. And I really tried to think about, well, what was the best way to do this? Like. Do I just throw all this stuff in the trash? Do I go out into some field very dramatically and light her on fire? I mean, this is my real life. And so I asked myself solely and completely as Matt, how did I want to handle Rhoda? And I decided that the best way was with a donation. So I sorted Rhoda and boxed her things up and I had met this young man that was interested in drag and he was definitely at the booger level. So. I told him, I said, you know, these things are very special to me and they took me somewhere in my life that at one time was positive and turned negative. And I just want you to always remember that no matter who you're dressed as, your drag persona, that you're still you. So I I gave him all of those things, but I kept one thing. I had this tiny little tiara, a tiara for a small chihuahua. I would just stick this in the front of my wig. And so I put it in its own box and it's almost like her urn. And I don't think that it will ever come out of the box because I don't need Rhoda. And I think it's pretty obvious that Rhoda always needed me. And so there must be something pretty damn good about Matt. So why not make him full time? Today, Matt sports the most luscious, rich beard you will ever see, a beard snapper. Rhoda would not approve. Thank you so much, brother, for sharing your story on the snap. And it was produced by none other than our own Rita Daniels. And when we return, we've got hexes, hip-hop, and hopeless politicians for real, for real. When snap judgment, be careful what you wish for, continues. 
Snap Judgment. Now, did you ever see one of those lottery winners on TV? You know, they win, they actually win a bazillion dollars, right? And they say, it's not going to change me. I'm going to work the same way I always did. And you know what happens. About six months later, everything's going to hell. The money's all spent up. The cars are rotten in the yard. Wife's gone. The kids hate them. And the dog is over at the neighbor's house. Now, he's steady yapping about the curse of the lottery, the curse of the lottery. And I know you've thought the same thing I thought. Please curse me with some lottery winnings. People talk about it, whine about it, get counseling all the time about how terrible it is to get exactly what they always wanted. Today on the show, be careful what you wish for. Now, what's the one and only thing that's maybe a little bit better than a lottery winner? I think it's being a rock star. And so we sent our own Stephanie Fu to investigate how you get from regular people to rock star status. This is on location in the back of some limousine, a castle somewhere. Speaking of being careful what you wish for, right now I'm actually inside the Flaming Lips tour bus. For real? Really? I, I can dig it. That's Wayne Coyne the front man of the band. And I should be stoked to be talking to him, but I'm trying to get a story out of him. And he just wants to tell me about the time he shook Paul McCartney's hand, which is cool, but I'm looking for something more real, something more life or death. I mean, I didn't run into too many things that I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna die, you know. But, I mean, in that but way. too many things. So you did run into one. Well, I mean, life-changing things where you have to lay on the ground and a guy's got a gun to your head and you think, I'm gonna die. That's what I mean about the Paul McCartney experience. It... Wait, let's go back to the point of where you have a gun to your head. Okay. <laughs> the story starts in Oklahoma, where the Flaming Lips are from. I worked at this Long John Silver's 11, 12 years. I mean, from 1977 to almost 1990. So a long time. I mean, you know, it's all greasy, good junk. I mean, it's wonderful. Yeah, the lead singer of the Flaming Lips worked at Long John Silver's for a decade. Good career plan. But it allowed me to think about music and all that because it's such a simple job. I actually liked it. I didn't want to admit it too much, but I actually liked it. There was a big oil boom going on in Oklahoma. And everybody I knew from school, they were going to go work on these oil rig jobs where you're making, I mean, I, back then, I think they were making like a thousand bucks a week. You know, guys that I knew from school, they'd come in long distance and say, dude, why are you working this chump job, you know, making $4 an hour? I'm out there, I'm making a thousand dollars a week. And I have to say, I did feel like, man. But these oil workers, their wealth couldn't last. In the early 80s, oil prices fell. When it ended, I mean, it ended horribly, severely. So a guy who was used to making $1,000 a week, the next week is making absolutely nothing. He's got a house, he's got a couple of kids, and they have cars, and now suddenly they don't have any jobs. So it's like, man, that'd be worse than never having a job at all. I mean, it was desperate times. People were, there was a lot of robberies going on. People had gotten killed. There had been people put in the walk-in freezers, shot through the head. Four or five people had been killed at a sirloin stockade, you know, a steak restaurant. And this is where the gun comes in, because the Long John Silvers where Wayne worked was robbed as well. So we're getting ready to close up, you know, it's dark or whatever, and these guys running in there. I don't know why, they're just so mad. They're yelling, get on the ground! But when they come in, they yell at you like, oh my God! I mean, it hits you, it's real, and their guns are giant. So we're laying there. You to think about your brothers and your mother. I know how they're gonna hear that I'm dead. They're gonna hear it on the news in an hour. 
because I'm going to die, and this is, this, is just the, this is the end. Wayne thought about what he could do to combat the guns, and he knew Long John Silvers had a lot of fish knives. There's a table there, and there's a bucket that had our fish knives in it. And part of me thought, maybe I'm going to grab that knife, and I'm going to do something that I'm not just going to lay here and just let them shoot me, right? Or would I? I mean, I don't know. And then before you know it, they left. And we all are on the floor together. And we all just kind of went and locked the door, thinking, don't let them back. We could not believe it just happened. And we all just cried. Every time I worked after that, you know, it, once it got to be dark, someone would walk in and our hearts would all, you'd stand there for a minute and think, oh, I think he's going to rob us. No, he's not. He's just ordering fish and chips. <laughs> After a couple years of unemployment, the hotshot oil workers with the huge houses were coming in, looking for work at fast food restaurants. All of a sudden, Wayne was no chump. They don't have anything. And they're looking at me like, man, do you guys have any openings? I'm like, no, we don't. I mean, their lives were in turmoil. So one day, Wayne was closing up shop at Long John Silver's. It was just him and his assistant manager. This assistant manager, I didn't like. You could tell something was wrong with him. Just he's just the worst sort of person in the world that's desperate. So he's going to take the money from the day, and he's going to deliver it to the bank at the end of the night. And so Wayne leaves him to it and goes to his brother's house around the corner. On his way home, he passes by Long John Silver's again. So I'm going past the restaurant. I was just there 20 minutes ago. Now suddenly, man, the place is just cops, ambulances, and I'm like, wow, what happened? So anyway, I go in, the doors open, there's detectives all looking around, scratching their heads, and this, there's blood from the front door all the way to the back. Big, thick blood. And I thought, we must have gotten robbed. When you first walked in and you saw that blood, did you think, oh my God, somebody's dead? Yeah, I did. You know, it's crazy. And blood smells too. There's something metallic about it. But the assistant manager was not dead. Wayne found him in the bathroom with a bullet hole in his arm. He's actually sitting on the toilet, holding his arm. He's pooping with a lot of pain and a lot of blood. So Wayne thinks, well, looks like I'm the only one who can clean up the blood. And I go back there and I just start to get a mop to clean it up. It's my, it's my, it's my job. And the detective's like, don't mop up yet. And these detectives are all pretty smart. They know what a robbery looks like. The detectives start following the trail of blood which leads from the safe to the assistant manager's car. And they get his keys, they open the car, and there's the money. And then we, you know, you find out later that, well, after I leave, he's going to pretend someone came into the restaurant and robbed us. He had a gun, and he shoots himself in the arm. The assistant manager staged the robbery for the day's money. Well, he's calling the cops. Hey, I've been robbed, and I've been shot. And they just go get his keys. Hey, can we, can we open your trunk? And he's on the toilet bleeding, what's he going to say? I'm just saying to me, I would, do, I would have done two things. I would have used the bathroom first, and I would have put the money in my trunk first before I shot myself. I mean, that is just a, that's a horrible, cheap, desperate. And it was only, you know, it could only have been like $900. I mean, I did mop up the blood later. How was that? It's awesome. Wayne finally quit Long John Silver's when his band started making it big. The Flaming Lips have since won three Grammys and have sold hundreds of thousands of albums. And you haven't even lost the taste for Long John Silver's. No, but you wouldn't because it's been great. We'll still eat there like once a year, remember. Man, you could eat that every day, but it would kill you. She's a black belt in karate Working for the city She has to discipline her body Cause she knows that it's demanding Thank you, Stephanie, and thank you, Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips. Now, know this, Snapper. A little knowledge from your Uncle Glenn. Everybody wants something. Everyone wants something. And our own Pat Masidi Miller, like millions of virile young men around the country, certainly had something on his mind. Well, I was strolling on a lonesome night and hit the local dive. You know, the bar that's got that hopeless vibe where they let the people smoke inside. 
I hope to find nothing more than a drink, an unprovoked broken joke. I like to float while I sink. And there she was, my potential study subject, skin tone, spectacle, honey drip tongue, let mm. I'm ready to move like how are you doing tonight when some knuckle-headed fool grabs a stool to her right. Well, all right, okay, I'll play it cool and be fair. A new castle to the empty pool table, hope she sees me there. And I wished as if reciting a chant, please let her be the meant for me for male of my romance. For the chance just to advance and shake a hand I would trade worlds in. But with my luck, I thought with guff. She's probably that guy's girlfriend. By now my glass is empty, much like the nothing I had felt. But when I looked over my shoulder, she was by herself. Well, I decided I would focus. And as soon as I started to approach Miss, she spoke this. It's about time you finally came to say hi. Well, I'm not the type to interrupt, and I saw you had some company and well. Who well, that guy, he was bugging me a fly. You must be thinking of the drink you see in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) Soon she was pulling on my sleeve saying that we should leave, so we out. Then while sitting on the edge of the bed, words turned to whispers and I put a kiss to her neck. Soon enough the walls got shook, I'm hooked Tangled in angles, a strangling ankles A slave in a language of pain and lust With every robust thrust, a brush stroke Phrases or pages into it through the spine of a book I laid a left cheek on my chest She placed a right hand on my ribs I closed my eyes to sleep beside The comfort of my granted wish And when I awoke expecting to have rose and be beside her My wallet was gone Along with my synthesizer In addition to making the wheels go round for Snap, Pat Masidi Miller is also a hip-hop producer, MC extraordinaire. This story, in song form, and other creations can be heard on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now understand, on the Careful What You Wish For episode, wishes have power. They're not some casual children's plaything. People can get hurt, and in some unfortunate cases, wishing, hoping, believing in something might just cause the bad thing to pop into being. Anna Sussman found just such a situation and a man's life was on the line. And it was so vivid, it really is, even today, almost tattooed in my brain. A patient came to the emergency room of the VA hospital in Dallas, and he was admitted because it appeared that he was dying. He had lost over 50 pounds in the past uh, six weeks, and he was admitted to the internal medicine service and was assigned to me. It was a very humbling experience because after the physical examination, I hadn't a clue about what was causing this. Uh, We looked at the uh, usual causes uh, for massive weight loss in an elderly man, uh, such as cancer and so on, but the thing was that all the tests were normal. I embarrassingly performed almost every test the hospital could run. I was tremendously frustrated by this uh, because this man appeared to be on his way out of this life. In frustration, I asked a a colleague if he would mind talking to the man. My colleague, Dr. William Hensley, had grown up in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. In about five minutes, Bill found out the cause of this man's problem. He had been hexed. A curse had been put on him, and uh, he was convinced that he was going to die, so he simply quit eating. The origin of the hex went something like this. He decided to have his fortune told by a uh, well-known fortune teller in in that part of Dallas, and uh, he must not have been very happy with the fortune because he decided not to pay her. So the fortune teller decided to take revenge. Her way of doing it was to phone this man's wife and ask her during his sleep to snip a bit of hair from him, Then she delivered the hair to the fortune teller. You know, I I suspect that one of the reasons he went to the fortune teller in the first place was that there were marital troubles and he and his wife weren't getting along. The fortune teller used the man's hair to perpetrate the curse. The hex said that he would die. She let it be known that she had done this. And the man, knowing that he had been cursed, made uh, a decision to cooperate with it. He was so convinced that this woman had the power of the curse that he stopped eating. He made a conscious decision that uh, he was going to die. Be careful what you believe in. When doctors give negative prognoses, 
to patients saying, you know, they'll be dead in six months. People will often die on time uh, in concert with the prediction. The man looked like a skeleton when he came into the hospital, and nothing we could do could convince him to take food. He was dying. My colleague and I believe that this was really an urgent situation, uh, practically an emergency. The problem is that there were no known therapies in uh, medical school that we'd learn to confront this sort of thing, so we realized we were on our own, and so we got very creative. We concocted a dehexing ritual in which we would try to convince him that our powers were stronger than the powers of the, of the woman who had cursed him. We waited until Saturday night, about uh, 1 to 2 in the morning. We found an empty examination room, brought this man from his bed in a wheelchair. We had on our long white coats. This man was really afraid of what was about to happen, and we let the tension build. One of the things that I did was create a little fire in, a, in an ashtray, a metal ashtray. So we turned the lights out. The only light in the room was the blue flame coming from the ashtray. My colleague, Bill, took out this very large pair of scissors, moved quietly over to the man, clipped a lock of hair, and he said, as we burn this hair, your curse will be dispelled. It will go away. You will wake up totally well in the morning. But if you reveal that we've done this to anyone, the curse will come back five times stronger than it was originally. <laughs> we didn't want anybody uh, knowing about it. We thought we might be sanctioned. We were up for early morning rounds at daybreak. After breakfast had been served to the patients, we saw that he had ordered another tray. We were delighted at this. Uh, we didn't tell a soul. This was just between Bill, me, and the patient. He uh, began to gain weight, and he was discharged several days later uh, as a well man. Well, I was willing to put something on the line to save this man's life. I have no hesitation at all uh, for having done this. Uh, it was an emergency situation, and I think it was a life-saving endeavor. Big thanks to Dr. Larry Dossie for sharing that story with us. You can check out a link to The Good Doctor's work on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now, while you're at the website, share a story of your own. Or hit us on the Facebook, the Facebook, the Twitter, the Twitter. How else are we supposed to make this show? Let us know, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman and Renzo Gorio. Now, it's not wrong to want something. It is not. Mel, she wanted something simple. Just a little brother, or maybe even a little sister. Is that too much to ask? I'm Melanie. I was born and raised as an only child by a single mother. I had an aunt who also shared rearing duties. She was kind of like a surrogate mother when I was growing up, so she really treated me like a daughter. I always wanted a younger sibling, and especially a brother, someone to share experiences with. I guess it's because I was kind of a tomboy myself. I also kind of wished I had someone to bully. <laughs> and I would always ask my mother whenever she would date someone and it seemed serious. I'd ask her, are you going to have any more kids? I really want a little brother. You know, and she would always come back with something like, after you, I couldn't have any more kids because uh, it ruined me inside. So I'm in my mid-30s at this point. My aunt had become quite elderly. She suffered from dementia and she had, you know, a lot of problems. And I went to visit her one day. And we were talking, and she got on the topic of my mother. And then out of the blue, she said, well, you know that she had two more kids after you that she gave up for adoption. There were two boys. The first one, I believe, was born when you were around two, and the second one when you were three. And I told your mother, this has got to stop. What are you going to do, just keep having babies? My aunt gave my mother an ultimatum. She told her, I will help you raise Melanie, but I won't help you with the other two. 
Well, I, I, I thought, wow, you know, this, this is unbelievable. I think that she's an old lady who is losing her mind. So I'm thinking it's, a, it, it's completely false. It's, it's a story that she made up to attempt to drive a wedge between my mother and, and me. Well, it wasn't too long after that that I did go to visit my mother. And I said to my mother, you know, I said, you would not believe what my aunt told me. And I said, she told me that you had two more kids after me that you gave up for adoption. I didn't say it in a serious tone. It was like, can you believe this? Kind of cracking up. And my mother just got this blank look on her face. And then she spoke and she said, well, that old bitch must really hate me. And (laughs) I was floored. That's when I knew it was true. And I, I couldn't believe it. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt resentment and betrayal. Uh, My mother, but also my aunt, because I felt that my aunt was a big reason it happened. My mother, who knows what she would have done, but I don't think she would have given them up if my aunt hadn't pressured her into doing it. Probably the most resentment was for the fact that my mother had planned to never tell me. Because this is, you know, this is the one person you would think you could trust the most. She, she said something like, you're not going to ask me to go on the Montel Williams show, are you? <laughs> well, I asked my mother to give me whatever information she could. My mother gave me what information she had about the first boy that was born. His birth name and his birth date. And she told me that she honestly does not remember anything for the second one. So I, I went online. I found him. I made a phone call. And we spoke briefly. I, you know, I wish that we could have fallen into those roles of older sibling and younger sibling, but that was not the case at all. It was, and it was like he welcomed me into his home. He has a little apartment, and it was very amicable. The thing is, he was kind of jaded about ever finding his biological family. Okay, this is where we are now. He's actually a, a Facebook friend of mine. <laughs> And he, he, he never, ever, ever sends me any kind of personal messages or anything. And I'm not going to continue to pry, and I'm not going to set myself up for more disappointment. My aunt and my mother n- never spoke again after that. And uh, my aunt passed away a few years later. Actually, the relationship with my mother, I, I refused to talk to her for many years after that. When she would call, I wouldn't return her calls. She'd write me letters, I'd never respond. When I was younger, I really wanted a family. I, I wanted the typical nuclear American family. When I was a kid, I needed it. I don't need it now. I really don't. This is gonna sound terrible, but there, there have been many, many times when I've thought, when everyone passes on, it may actually be easier. Thank you, Mal, for letting us into your world. And thank you, Stephanie Fu, for producing that story. This week on The Snap, we're exploring the idea of getting exactly what you want. Lots of people, they want stuff, watches, clothes, hats, who knows? Me, I just always wanted to fly. Not in an airplane or nothing, just jump in the sky and fly around, waving and fighting crime or something. And really, laugh if you want to. I have not given up. I know the force resides within Now, Snap Judgment's Anna Sussman, she didn't really want stuff either. If you don't know, Anna's one of those good people that you read about in magazines, Reader's Digest, Chicken Soup for the Soul, stuff like that. So Anna went to Africa, and what she wanted was to help some kids. In an open-air classroom in western Kenya, I turned my back on 20 high school students to write an assignment on the chalkboard. Write a poem about HIV-AIDS. I'm 20 years old, dressed like a missionary in a floor-length skirt and a collared t-shirt, but technically, I'm a high school teacher, although I've just barely finished high school myself. I'm living the young aid worker dream, six weeks in a tiny chicken village in Africa, then back to college to show the photos to all my friends. I write letters home about the quiet beauty of kerosene lanterns, how much these people have to teach us. Kids line up outside my thatched hut to listen to my disc man. The school I'm teaching at is very new. 17 boys, 3 girls. 
At lunchtime, I actually hide behind a row of bushes to eat my power bars. I packed a suitcase full, but it's hard for me to hide, and I'm soon caught. What kind of food is that? It looks very fine. They're hungry. So I come up with a master plan. I get one of the parents to plow the field near the school in exchange for school fees, another to plant it with corn and beans, and a few months after I leave, they should all have daily hot lunch. Gorgeous. It's a plan I borrowed from the school down the road, but as far as I'm concerned, I just solved the problem of African hunger. The school had one set of greasy, worn government textbooks, the books used by every school in the country. On my first day, I decided they were substandard. I could create a more meaningful curriculum. The students come in with their HIV poems. Age is a ruthless killer. Age is like a dark forest. The poems are decent, but the students are embarrassed. They're supposed to perform the poems for the younger children, but they're too shy, too quiet, especially the three girls. So I come up with another plan. A puppet show. Let's all make puppets, and the puppets will perform your poems. Kid-friendly, less shameful. I'm on a roll. We'll make papier-mâché heads and cloth dresses for our AIDS puppets. I bring in cloth from the market, some balloons, a stack of newspapers, a bucket of water, and a 50-pound bag of flour. Mix the water and the flour together like this, and dip the newspaper in. I turn around to write some instructions on the board. Chaos erupts in the classroom. Wooden desks are knocked to the ground, a bucket of water is toppled, one boy jumps over a bench and begins to wrestle his classmate. I give a sharp, hey, and they freeze. Scraps of newspaper float to the dirt floor, and flour is everywhere. On their eyelashes, in their hair, bulging from their pockets. A wave of realization washes over me, cold and nauseating. They're hungry. They're fighting over the flour. I ditched the puppet plan. I divided the flour among the kids. I promised a bag of flour to the highest performing student, but of course, I just ended up buying bags of flour for all of them. In a desperate attempt to make myself feel better, I began giving away my remaining power bars, my clothes, my disc man. No, no, my student said. No thank you, teacher. But it wasn't about what they wanted. It made me feel better. When it came time to go home, I left most of my stuff. I just took my film, my notebooks, my passport. I walked to the road, caught a bus to the Capitol, and I bought a big crate full of brand new government textbooks to send back to the school's actual teachers. Many thanks to our own Anna Sussman for that story. And don't go anywhere. When Snap Judgment returns, more stories about getting everything you want in just a moment. Our final guest of the show 
wanted something that only weird, crazy, strange people seem to want deep down, somehow, some way. He wanted to be a politician. In 1990, I decided that I was going to run for mayor of Chico, California. I had never run for something before. I've run away from a lot of things, and it sounded like a lot of fun. I knew the song by David Crosby that said, if you want to get elected, you have to cut your hair. But then I started looking at pictures of Washington and Jefferson, and those guys all had ponytails. So I kept my dreadlocks. They were down to my butt. I looked like George Clinton. The other weird thing was that my name is DNA. It's generic, it's genetic. I think it's important when you run for political office that you have a name that's easy to remember, and DNA is the best name there is for that. I'll admit it. In that first election, I was silly. When people would ask me what my platform was, I went backstage and I would lug out like a huge wooden platform that I had stolen from the loading dock at Safeway. I developed a slogan. I think it's important to have a slogan. My slogan was most politicians want to get into your pockets, but DNA is already in your genes. I had an idea for Chico. Let's dig up all the streets, fill them with water, get some gondolas, and we'll be the little Venice of Northern California. Over the next two elections, I honed my campaign skills. Then, in 2000, something truly remarkable did happen. I all of a sudden gained like a political awareness of how the election was played. I cut off my butt-length dreads. People seemed to really respond to that. They would say, hey, DNA, you seem to make a lot more sense now. What's different? I'd be like, I cut my hair. They'd be like, yep, that's it. As I geared up for the election process, a friend asked me why I didn't run as a Green Party candidate. I found out. Butte County didn't officially have a Green Party chapter, so I helped start one. And then I nominated myself for mayor. Now I had a horde of greenies by my side, and we set out to do battle with a two-headed beast called Democrat and Republican. And if I was Sir Lancelot ready to slay the dragon, King Arthur was most certainly Ralph Nader. I like Ralph. I like what he says. And, like Noam Chomsky, I don't understand much of what he says, but what I do understand makes sense. And what sold me was the way the major media ignored him, because they were ignoring me too, so I felt like we had something in common. And then, as we started moving towards election day, we weren't getting much play in the media. So I staged a coup. We enticed Ralph Nader to stop in Chico. It would be the last engagement of his tour. Then came coup number two. I alerted the media, I said, a radical political group called Nudists for Nader were going to storm the stage at the show and there were just going to be nude people everywhere. Tell them that there will be nude people and you'll find yourself in a media frenzy. Did the nudists show up? Yes, they did. Fifteen nude people on stage with signs talking about Ralph Nader and the Green Party. And to top it off, I was scheduled to speak right before Ralph Nader. I was dressed in a green sharkskin suit, and most people didn't recognize me, and not to brag. All right, it's kind of like bragging, but it was the best damn speech I had ever given in my life. The room went nuts. I could hear people listening to the speech on the radio applauding. I would have felt sorry for anyone following my barn burner, but Ralph managed to get the crowd higher and higher until it felt like a Rolling Stones concert. At the very end of the show, with the national media waiting to see Ralph walk off the stage and talk about his last show in Chico, a woman from Chico who had made a plaster Paris bust of her breasts and painted them green ran to the stage to give a present to Ralph. He grabbed them, not knowing what they were. I jumped on stage, grabbed the breasts from Ralph. He was about to be shown nationwide with a pair of green breasts. The effect on the community was immense. Like, the Democrats were smiling, the Greens were smiling, and the Republicans, they were grinning. Because this trickle-down theory of a vote for Nader is a vote for Bush was in full swing. And while my 6,000 votes were 2,500 shy of gaining entrance to City Hall, in Butte County, uh, I received more votes than Ralph. Yeah, it was safer to vote for DNA than for Nader. 
Thanks to the fear factor, Nader wound up with a notoriously low vote count. After the election, I started going to green meetings. Without Ralph to be the leader, the local greens started swirling in their own eddies of confusion. And then it became kind of a general consensus that the biggest problem was my nudist for Nader stunt. People started saying that having nude people was no way to get a message out about an organization that was just starting. Then they politely asked me to leave the organization. I was kicked out of the Green Party, the only party I ever wanted to be a part of, the party that I started, the party that we brought Ralph Nader and had a bunch of nudists show up to, I was no longer a part of. I guess I'm just not a party person when it comes to political parties anyway. I'd rather be back home laying out the plans for the next election. And who knows, maybe next time I'll win. Thank you, DNA. Now, DNA is a freelance journalist, a novelist, and a stand-up comic. We're going to have a link on our website to his first book, Memoirs of the Messiah, a 98% true story. Our piece was produced by Mark Ristich and Pat Masidi Miller. Now, it's that time, y'all. It's that time. Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone. No way. Let the clouds part for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Stephanie, always leave him wanting more food. And Rita, that pork was delicious Daniels. William, don't put him on the train, Urbina. And Anna, Power Bar, Sussman. Super Snap, Sexy Soul Production Crew, Pat Masidi Miller, Renzo Gorio, and Natalia Yeager. And I have to say, Snappers, we're sad. We're sad. Mitzi Mock is going off to journalism school. She's leaving us. But know this, Mitzi. Once you go snap, you never go back. Voices in your head? Demanding you watch that Ken Burns marathon? No need to see a shrink. That is just our friends, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Many thanks to them, show them some love. And PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, putting the public in public media, prx.org. And while this is not the news, nowhere near the news, in fact, you could set out in search of the fabled land of Shangri-La, discover a portal in a Montana laundromat, run into paradise with a caveat you can never return home. You could do all this, friends, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.